Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. The key is to wear out brushes. I mean, there's no better way. You can watch videos, you can go to museums, you can take workshops, you can do any number of things that may cut the learning curve down for you. But the best way to learn is to go outside and paint. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, episode five. I'm your host, Kellyanne Powers, and this week we're talking to that voice you just heard, Mark Mahaffey. Mahaffey paints in many styles. He calls them his compartments, and they span both media and subject. Today, we're focusing in on his plein air work, but a lot of what we talk about can work for any subject, realistic or non-objective. Mahaffey explains how he gets to the story of his work. He shares practical tips on blending color and controlling the saturation of that same color, and he talks about how and why it's so important to keep things simple. Check out Mahaffey's work at the website learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode five. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter. You'll get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. Here we go. Hi, Mark. Thank you for being with us today. What is it that you like about plein air painting? There are a number of things. Number one, I'm an outdoor person. I grew up in the woods. There was a very large tract of land in my family for years and years and years. And so they kind of let me loose on about 1,200 acres at the age of five. And a trout stream ran right through it. So I kind of grew up in an outdoor family, hiking, hunting, fishing, and catching frogs at a young age. So I love being outdoors. One of the uh, most fun things for me to do in the world is to go fishing. So anything that gets me outdoors is a good thing. Plain air painting gets me outdoors. There's something about having to react with what's right in front of me and get that down visually is exciting. Plus, it's just exciting to be outdoors with the critters and the mosquitoes. Could you give us a bird's eye view of your process? Backpack filled with all my painting supplies. Drive. Oh, okay. Well, let's park here and go for a little walk. Backpack goes on. Sometimes the walk is short, 50 yards, because, oh, that's cool. And sometimes it's long, a mile or two. Um, That's why the backpack. And then I walk until something strikes me as I could make a painting of that. I don't walk around to find the perfect site. I get frustrated when I paint out with a whole bunch of people because invariably two or three or four walk around forever and never seem to get to the painting because they keep looking for the perfect site. I pretty much feel I could make a decent painting out of anywhere as long as it's coming from within me instead of just copying what I see. So I walk along and I go, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. Let's see what I can do with that. It's like a problem to solve. And then I set everything up and I just jump in. There's a little bit of a schism between what what I recommend, especially beginners do, and what I do. I skip the value plan. Let's make a two by three or three by four thumbnail. I don't skip that in the studio when working from photo references, but I skip it in plain air because I just visualize how I want the painting to look. 
and then I attempt to match that visualization. And I use what I see as clues or cues to make a good painting. Sometimes there's just just a resemblance between my painting and what I'm looking at. And I move trees, I move rocks, I move water, I move all of the shapes if I need to, to say what I need to say to make a good painting. I'm a studio painter that paints in plain air, not the other way around. For me, plain air painting is very personal. It's a lot of fun. It's a way to get me outdoors. It feeds my studio work. The spontaneity of, of one carries over into the, hopefully the spontaneity of the other. And I like the fact that I'm up against a wall with acrylics. So when I paint in plain air, I seldom have more than two hours to devote to that. I have something else going on. You know, it's a 9 by 12, 11 by 14, at the most 12 by 16, let's do this. Maybe even two 6 by 6 paintings in the morning, usually, because I'm up so early. And then let's get back to whatever else I had planned for the day. Was it useful for you when you were learning to have the repeatable process? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, when I first started years ago, it, it was very frustrated because it's all about the, the materials and the, you know, how do you deal with this and the water and the paper towels and where everything goes and, and all of that. And then could I make it look like the way I wanted it to look? And it was all so frustrating. But the key is to wear out brushes. I mean, there's no better way. You can watch videos, you can go to museums, you can take workshops, you can do any number of things that may cut the learning curve down for you. But the best way to learn is to go outside and paint lots of paintings. Was painting from life useful in training you how to see? Trying to replicate the effects of light or light and shadow or how color bounces into shadows or how one object, the color of one object bounces into the color of another object. All of those things are enhanced in my studio work by plein air painting. The drawing component also enters into it, being able to actually make something look like what, what it is. But, but, you know, drawing is one of those skills that can ultimately be learned. So the more you do it, the better you get at it. And being outdoors and being forced to simplify all of the huge amount of information that our eyes take in, that's a really good thing. And that carries over into my studio work. So that simplification process back and forth between tons of information and that simplification then into the studio, same thing, whether it's a conceptual thing right out of my head, scary proposition, or a photographic based uh, references, then that simplification to get to the essence of the visual story that I want to tell is a marriage between plein air work and studio work. What's the biggest challenge you see your students facing with materials around acrylic painting? The problem for most people is they dry so fast. And so oil painters especially, they have a huge amount of time to make transitions between one hue and another or one temperature another or one value and another because they can feather those edges and make them blend oh so smoothly. And with acrylics, unless I get four or five brushes stacked in my left hand to feather or there, I mean, there's certain techniques that will work, but it's more difficult with acrylics. Are there ways to blend acrylics yeah. for a softer edge? You have two choices. You can physically blend or optically blend. 
So optically blend requires mm, touching the surface more often with smaller strokes. So I can make a green by optically blending yellow and blue strokes together. Not physically blending, but just placing them side by side. Lots of yellow, lots of blue dabbed together will read as a green passage. Or I can physically blend. If I wanted a very soft, even transition between yellow and blue, then I would have two brushes or two globs of paint on my painting surface, one yellow, one blue, and I would paint them both. And where they met, while the acrylic was still wet, I would physically scumble or wet blend those two passages until I got that smooth transition that I wanted and then just let that passage dry. And you can do that multiple times. It doesn't have to be always about two piles of color. You can do it with three piles of color or four piles of color. It just depends on how fast you want to work and how many brushes you want to have going at the same time. There is this idea that to paint spontaneously means to not plan. Do spontaneous paintings need a good plan? I mean, the short answer is yes. I'm going to expound a little bit in that a plan allows you to be more spontaneous. So if you know where all the shapes are and how they fit together, and you have a fairly good idea about how light or dark those shapes are, that allows you more freedom, not less. If you don't plan, like if you just jump in to the painting process with no plan, then that means you're going to make quite a few missteps along the way. So what I do is I plan where the shapes go, how they fit together. That's a done deal. And then in my head or in the studio, in my sketchbooks, I actually define the values as I wish them to be in the painting. So I do that in plain air in my head, but it's in my head. If it's dark in my head or in the thumbnail, then it's going to be dark in my painting. So I follow that plan. Well, that allows me to be creative with color or creative with storytelling because I have a solid plan to go from. It doesn't mean that I'm locked into the plan. I deviate if I think I can make a better painting. How many values do you plan with? Five values. I teach with five. I do my value studies in my sketchbook with five. I think in terms of five. So the five are white, light, medium, the midtone, a medium dark, and dark, very dark, or black. So between black and white, that midtone sits dead center. Between the midtone and light, that's the light, it sits dead center. And between the midtone and dark, that medium dark, it sits dead dead center between the midtone and the dark. And those five values, it's an oversimplification because, of course, there's huge variances in between all of those in nature. But used those five seems to simplify all of my value decisions. And I'll run similar values together. Something may be medium dark and a midtone. I may make it all a midtone just to supply unity between those two shapes and run it together. So I know a lot of instructors use 10, but 10 to me gets to be confusing. And sometimes when I teach, if people have issues seeing value and, and understanding, I'll go with just three, light, mid-tone, and dark, and then have them do all of their thumbnails or value plans with those three. And that seems to settle it for them. 
Why do you suggest value studies? The value study, especially multiple value studies, may give you options for a better painting. Value is how we see the world. And there are many times when you see a tree and the value of that tree may be a mid-tone trunk and the mass of leaves, that shape. But it may be more important for your painting to make that tree very dark as in a silhouette, thereby making whatever's behind it much lighter. And so I make those options in paint. So if I do the painting and I look and I go, well, this has value issues, everything's a mid-tone, then uh, I can just go, oh, well, okay, it's been drying now for three or four or five minutes. Let's just make that tree darker. <laughs> and so I just go ahead and do it. But as a beginner, I think it might be very helpful to make little compositional outlines of the shapes and then fill in the, the values that you would like for your painting in those shapes. And that's just another helpful part of the process that you can put there to relate to. And also uh, the light changes as we're painting out. So, you know, like every few minutes, the sun moves, we move actually, the sun doesn't. <laughs> and so the light changes, shadows change their shape, the quality of the light changes. And so the value study helps in terms of those kinds of changes. How do you assign values and what's important about how you assign values? If I'm after a specific atmospheric feeling mood event like fog, it's very misty and foggy here today, then the values are closer together. But usually I'm after a certain amount of value contrast, that huge amount of difference between black and white, and that edge between black and white draws the viewer's attention. So a lot of my plein air work is high contrast, really dark, dark, placed next to really light, light. And I think in ter terms of that contrast, value contrast, being in or around my focal area, the story I want to tell, and then everything else is not quite as much contrast. And if I put that values that are similar close together, that tells the viewer this area is not quite so important. So I base the value work and color choices on the story that I want to tell based on what I'm seeing. It may not match the values that I'm seeing because I can make a better painting by changing the values. And that's the part that I can do in my head after all these years that I probably would recommend that beginners do the compositional value study maybe even more than once one, two, or three times to see the value possibilities in what's before them. What are you taking then from the scene if yeah. you're not taking values from the scene? I am taking some clues about value from the scene. And, and sometimes uh, I reproduce them almost as I see them with some enhancement or simplification. I walk along and tell, well, I say, well, that's kind of interesting. I think I can make a painting out of that. And so then I decide, okay, so what's the specific story I want to tell exactly? Is it about the small shapes as light and dark hits the small shapes? Is it about the figure in the distance? Is it about the close value relationship of the banks of fog that roll in, obscure color and shape. So there's a lot of different things that could enter into that decision. I try to get it to one principal 
story instead of multiple competing stories, which is what I see often in plein air work, because people try to reproduce what they see and there's just so much. Uh, what I try to do is decide, okay, well, this is the visual story. Everything else is either supportive or secondary. And if it's secondary, I try to leave it out. And all of that gets done hopefully inside of a couple hours of work. Often, I can get two or three paintings done in two hours if they're small, six by six, eight by 10, nine by 12, where some of my painting friends are getting only one painting done in that same amount of time because they have a tendency towards putting everything in. Why is simplification important for a good painting? Why not just paint what's there? It's there. It seems to work. Yeah, uh, I'm going to teach a plein air painting class for Interlochen Fine Arts Center in, in northern Michigan soon. One of the first things we do after going through all of our equipment in the morning is to talk about this simplification process. So I set them a problem each day. And the first day's problem is, okay, you have 10 to 12 shapes total that you can deal with. You must tell your story with 10 or 12 shapes. And that forces the painters that have lots of experience to get back to this huge simplification. And it forces the beginners to know that they have to be able to tell their story, whatever it may be visually, wherever they set up in only 10 to 12 shapes. It's a kind of a difficult problem to solve until you've been through the process a number of times. And that's not to say that your painting can't have 58 shapes. Of course it can. But as a beginner and getting started, because nature offers us just so much information visually, we see it all, that simplification process is something that seems to ground the beginners into a place where they're safe. And also 10 to 12 shapes forces them to really think about what it is they want to say visually. Because if, let's say, for example, their landscape includes a figure, well, the figure can be stated with one shape or 10 to 12 shapes. And if they have 10 to 12 shapes in the figure, that leaves them kind of out of luck for the landscape that the figure's in. So it's that balance of, okay, what's the fewest amount of brush strokes I can use to tell this story? And the less you say sometimes, the more involved the viewer gets because the viewer has to put themselves into there and make some decisions about what it is you were trying to say. And that gets them visually involved. How do you keep a shape interesting? If you're talking about, for example, like a giant sky, it's a big shape or a line of dark trees. How do you make it so that it still has energy and life? Yeah, two different answers. Number one, it may not need to be interesting. It can be just a silhouette. It could be one solid value from one end of the shape to the other. It could be one solid hue from one end of the shape to the other if other parts of the painting are eminently more interesting. So you, you wouldn't want that conflict. However, having said that, if I end up with a rather large shape that's an important part or a lot of the composition, what I can do is slightly vary the temperature from one side of the shape to the other, or I can vary the hue from one side to the other to create more interest, or I can break up or create indices of change along the length of that shape to create a little incident or added interest around the perimeter of that shape. There's all kinds of manipulations you can do to make an area of the painting that is uninteresting more interesting, always keeping in mind the story that you want to tell. Obviously, most interesting focal point 
second most interesting secondary focal point and then maybe just let the other stuff especially in plain air yeah yes like let the other stuff go or let's leave it out in the first place <laughs> yeah yeah because plain air is a little different i use plain air studies plain air work sometimes for larger studio work and a lot of artists do that sometimes they're just standalone because i need to get outdoors and that's about half the time um, because studio work takes on a life of its own i got a couple other compartments that take up a lot of time and every artist is different in terms of where they're going with the product the end product i don't worry quite so much about that occasionally i'll do one and go hmm damn, not bad. <laughs> and, you know, so it goes in a frame and uh, a gallery gets that one. But that's not the ultimate goal. It just happens occasionally. From a composition standpoint, again, all of this is happening in your head intuitively at this point. I know I'm not supposed to interrupt you, but oh, yeah. I have to because the intuition thing uh, has become quite the topic of conversation. So there's a difference between artistic intuition and our normal intuition. We all have that intuition of, I don't think I'm going to park my car in this dark parking lot. It's the intuition that tells us mm, something bad could happen. Intuition in terms of creativity and painting is different because it's intuition usually based on years and years of experience. So all of the previous paintings of my life enter into my intuitive decision-making about this particular painting. So that's a little bit different. So my intuition is based on lots of brush miles. So compositionally, what has worked in the past may work this time, or I may get really, really brave and do something that I've never tried before, which I often will do, just creative problem solving. When you're beginning, this stuff feels so mechanical, like a machine that hasn't been oiled or jerky where, oh, must think through five values. Oh, must. Or, or even setting up equipment. Yeah, yeah. all of it. Yeah. And then hopefully, eventually, if you do it enough, it becomes intuitive, artistically intuitive. Mm -hmm. So some of what we're talking about is like, how does a beginner think through this so that eventually they get to the level where they don't have to jerkily think through it? So from a composition standpoint, what decisions are you making about how you're setting up and positioning the scenes that you're about to paint? I'll use an analogy, and it's the, the setup of the equipment. So all of my easel, my tripod, my box of paints, my palette, my water bottle, my paper towels, my brushes, everything that I use to paint in plain air fits in that pack. And when I get to the spot, wherever that spot may be, I put the pack down, I can set everything up inside of two minutes and be ready to paint inside of three minutes, ready to go, panel, everything ready to go. So when I teach, the very first thing we do is we set it all up and we take it all down and we set it all up again. And from the repetition of that, they get much better because you don't want to waste your time taking 45 minutes or half an hour or even 20 minutes to set everything up. You're there to paint. So that set up, take down, set up, take down. And it's through repetition that that smoothness comes about. It's the same thing with painting, especially plein air painting. The more you do it, the better you get at your particular process. So from years of plein air painting once a week, twice a week, my process has been stabilized. So I don't really even have to think about it in terms of 
I see a story I wish to tell, I'm probably going to put that star of the show, that important story, in one of the four third quadrants on my rectangle or square, and then work out from that focal area. And that's basically how I start. Once you know the focal point, how do you keep the viewer's eyes at it? It reminds me of, uh, I, I have another compartment. The viewers should know this. Anybody that goes to my website will certainly know it. And about almost half of my work is totally non-objective, abstract work, which is just design-based and internally design-based. In that work, that artist, the other me, feels that there can be multiple competing focal areas which makes the eye jump around quite a bit internally in that rectangular picture space. I even don't mind taking the viewer's eye off as long as I have a path to lead them back on again. It's a little different with plain air painting. In plain air painting, different artist, different conceptual base, different compartment, I have a story to tell. There's one particular star of the show. And that star of the show, everything else focuses around that. I may have a supporting cast of characters, which will be also important, but not quite as important as the star of the show. I want the viewer to get what I had to say visually about what I'm looking at in plain air. So it's two different processes and two different conceptual bases. In plain air, I want people to get that vision, the painting that I saw in my head. Not quite the same with my non-objective work where I don't mind if they jump around, leave, and then come back for a while. It's just two separate compartments. How do you use edges? in the studio plein air work? Basically, we have lost edges, edges which are non-existent. They just fade into the next shape. Or, or we have soft edges where the edge has been scumbled over or feathered over so that you can see the difference between shapes, maybe a slight temperature difference or a slight value difference. But the edge is there. It's just very soft. And then we have hard edges. Hard edges tell the viewer, this area is important. Look here. Soft edges, not so much, maybe supporting. And lost edges, not important at all. And so I use all three of those edges in my acrylic work, even repainting whole sections of a painting to soften one particular area or lose an edge in one particular area to get what I want. And so I usually retain hard edges for in or around the focal area, the story. How important is design to you and your work? A lot. <laughs> so that's why I seldom walk out and paint what I see. There's so much information usually, and everything needs to be redesigned to make a more effective work. Am I on the lookout for the perfect spot? Sure. Just like I'm on the lookout for the one out of about 100, sometimes two out of 100 photographs that might make a painting with minimal changes. It's not that the other 98 won't work. It's just that it takes a redesign of those other 98 photographic references to make a good painting. Same thing painting in plain air. Everything needs to be redesigned. Telephone pole doesn't have to be there just because it's there. This tree doesn't have to be there. It can be over here and it can be lighter or darker or bigger or smaller because the painting needs it 
to be that way. So I feel free to completely redesign what I'm seeing to tell the story that I need to tell. It's uh, freeing, really, once you get this idea across, especially to beginners, because they're so locked into what they see that sometimes they lose sight of the fact that they're supposed to make a decent painting out of that, too. Thinking back to Mark that had only been painting for 10 years, the difference between seeing something that could make the painting better versus trying to show everything that's happening. A long time ago, now a very long time ago, my concern was, could I make it look like what I was seeing with paint? You know, that has a lot to do with drawing skills initially, and it also has to do with, okay, turning color into three-dimensional vision into that two-dimensional surface and trying to represent that. And so there were a lot of years where that was my main concern. Could I make it look like that? You know, I left that behind a long time ago. I know I'm, I'm good enough to make it look like that. Maybe not quite so good as some of my contemporaries who are also good at representational work, but it's more my impression now and the feeling within me that I tried to get on the canvas as opposed to replicating what I see. You know, it's always this back and forth, back and forth. Okay, yeah, I want people to recognize this as a tree, but I don't care if they recognize it as that tree. And if you have the shape of the tree, you can get away with a lot. Yeah, we recognize things via their silhouette. So every artist is different. My impetus is more towards my inner feelings and the storytelling, and and I manipulate a lot of things. A lot of my friends are more about, okay, this is absolutely gorgeous. I would like to show people that I feel that this is gorgeous, and their whole being is about acquiring the skills to do that, and they do absolutely marvelous job. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that approach either. What are the principles of design that you concentrate on? The two that are most important to me are dominance and unity. And I use one to achieve the other. So dominance in terms of temperature, dominance that could be hue, temperature, value, by having a dominant principle hold all of that together, that supplies the unity for all of it, all other things being equal. And I, and I, I do think about rhythm and, and a couple other things, but usually that's after the fact. So I'm always about, let's make something important. Let's have something be dominant to help hold all of this together. Often it will be uh, temperature, warm or cool. And sometimes I'll simplify that even to, okay, this is going to be a yellow painting. <laughs> I see this as a yellow painting. And of course that will assign a warm temperature dominance to that, but all of that holds that together. And then I can make color decisions based on that. So if it's a yellow painting, maybe I'm going to use the complement uh, violet or near complement blue violet in the focal area, which will create a visual bounce for the viewer. So it's those two principles of design, which I keep in my head and the others kind of float through, or they get assigned a position in critique after the fact, but not while I'm painting because it's way too much to think about. So you would go into when you're doing the planning in your brain, you would say, this is going to be a yellow painting, or this is going to be a warm dominant painting, or this is going to be a light value dominant painting. High key painting. High yes. key painting. Mm -hmm. That happens before the first paintbrush goes down. It does. And... <laughs> And dot, 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 because it's acrylic and because it dries quickly, 
I can change my mind anytime during the process. Part of the reason that nine times out of 10, I paint an acrylic in plain air, that 10th time is watercolor. What is a mother color? Have you read my book? I have read your book, Mark. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's in plain air acrylic for, for the listeners that haven't heard. And Walter Foster is the publisher. And, and there'll be a was, link. Yes, there'll be a link. Uh, be a link. Okay, it was yeah. my winter project. I was honored to be asked to do that. So mother color. And that's, again, another way to supply unity to your work. So it's a problem that I set for myself and searching again for a cohesive whole. So before I start, I mix, pre-mix a pile of color. Let's say a mid-tone violet. And there's my pile. It's there on my palette. So I begin, as always, and delineate the shapes. Make sure I know what the star of the show is going to be. All of my color mixtures will contain some of that mid-tone violet. So let's take green, for example. If I put some of that violet in green, because of the yellow component in the green, that mid-tone violet will slightly neutralize the green. That's okay, because that mother color is going to slightly alter every single color choice in that whole painting. And I always make an effort to use a significant portion of that mother color also in the painting as is. And that mother color acts as the unifying element to hold all of that together. That seems like a really useful way, especially for a beginner, to practice unity. It does. It's like supplying automatic unity. It's a little frustrating, especially for beginners, because the saturation thing, like, but I need a bright green here. But you can't get a bright green if you mix this with this. Try it anyway. Do you, do you know what I mean? There's compromises. Yes. What is the most important things about color that you think someone needs to know to set a good foundation? Color has four components, right? It's hue, that's the actual color that it is, green, red, blue. And then value, that's how light or dark the color is. And then temperature, that's how warm or cool that color is. And then saturation, that's how bright or dull that color is. And that's the same regardless. So every selection, you have to take that sort of into account. And it can be overwhelming, especially as beginners, they have a tendency to buy all the tubes. So a bunch of primaries, a bunch of secondaries, and they got this big box of tubes and they just get like overwhelmed. So I always go back to like three primaries plus black and white and then learn those and how they work, make a bunch of paintings with those. And then as you work and you feel the need to add to those, add to those slowly. And as you add to them, learn those and how they work with the first three, and then just slowly build over the course of 10 years to 50 years. <laughs> what palette of colors do you use? In plain air, and for most of my studio work also, I use a split primary palette. So that's a warm and a cool of each of the primary colors. They are, and there are substitutes for practically all of these, but right now in acrylic, cad yellow light as my cool yellow and cad yellow dark or cad yellow deep, depending on the manufacturer, uh, for my warm yellow. And then alizarin crimson for my cool red, and sometimes I'll substitute quinacridone rose as a cool red. Permanent rose also sometimes enters into the equation. They're all cool reds. I handle them all about the same. And then for my warm red would be cad red light, which is a very warm red approaching 
orange. And then for blues, a cobalt blue stays on my palette. It's kind of my neutral, but my cool blue is thalo blue which is uh, tends towards the green and very strong. And then for my warm blue would be ultramarine blue. I'm experimenting with anthraquinone blue, which is kind of a cool blue, but not as cool as thalo. Plus it's much, much darker than cobalt, ultramarine, or thalo blue. And so I can get a really dark, dark with anthraquinone blue mixed with alizarin crimson. And sometimes I'll put a little yellow in it to um, neutralize the violet mixture. So I get a kind of a neutral dark with that mixture. So I have all of those in my plain air kit, plus black and white. I seldom use black. It's just not necessary, but I keep it. And then always my favorite golden titanium white stays in there also. Yeah, so that's that's pretty much it for plain air. And that's easy to manipulate on a small palette. And watercolor, I have the same split primary equivalent, um, which means I, I get to mix and control the saturation of all of my secondaries. Green, violet, and orange are all mixed by me, and I get to control how bright those secondary mixtures are. And then how do you control how bright those secondary mixtures are? And this comes into warm and cool of each of those colors, right? Yeah, absolutely. So mixing light colors has a tendency to produce the most saturated. So let's take green, for example. The most saturated green I can make would be with my cool cad yellow light mixed with my cool blue phthalo blue. And if I mix those two together, the resulting green is very saturated. Br think bright as opposed to dull. So that's very bright. If I mix, say, cad yellow light with ultramarine blue, I'm going to get a green. It's going to be a pleasing green, but it won't be quite so saturated because of the red component in the ultramarine. I'm getting a little bit of red into the mixture. Red is the opposite of green. They have a tendency to neutralize. So the resulting mixture is a little more neutralized than the first mixture. And then I can push that even farther by mixing cad yellow dark, which tends towards the orange. It's got a little red in it with ultramarine blue, which has also a little red in it. So now I'm getting red from two different primaries. And so the resulting green mixture is very subdued, desaturated, dull. And so I have the utmost of control over the saturation just by the split primary palette that I use to mix those secondaries with. And then of course, black and white are both desaturate color. So if you add white to anything, that makes it duller. And if you add black to anything, that makes it duller lighter and darker too, of course, but less saturated color mixtures. So my split primary palette is not hindering. It, it kind of frees me up for control. And most artists I know are into control. This also says that if, if someone is painting and they think like, why, why are my colors so dull? Mm -hmm. Check the temperature check, of the check color. The, yeah, check your mixtures. Absolutely. Yep. And especially if you're dumping a bunch of white into your color all the time, that will have a tendency to make things duller. I think there is this idea that acrylics are perfectly opaque, especially the heavy body acrylics. I have not found that true in my you know, experience. A lot of them are quite transparent. Like alizarin crimson is very transparent. Thalo blue is very 
transparent. All the quinacridones are transparent. So I do have a tendency to think transparent as opposed to opaque, but only insofar as the darks go. I don't mind transparent darks at all in acrylic. It sort of mimics the transparent darks that oil painters use oftentimes. And then the more opaque passages are when I, I start putting titanium white into mixtures to get lighter. So my lighter passages I save for a little bit later in the process, and those get applied usually on top of or around the darks, which I did earlier in the process. Not everybody works that way, but the viewer, and this is kind of the cool thing, it's the same thing with my mixed water media work that I do in the studio using transparent watercolor and gouache. Well, same thing with transparent darks and opaque lights in acrylic. In one, the light goes through the transparent layers and hits whatever ground you're using or whatever paper you're using and comes back through and you get that kind of transparent glow. And the other, in opaque, the light hits and bounces right back to your eyes. And so the viewer sees that difference and it just adds more interest to your work. You just mentioned a colored ground. What is a colored ground? Why do you use it? I seldom paint on white. My grounds are usually prepared commercial canvas panels by any of three or four manufacturers, or I'll buy uh, birch-mounted panels raw and then gesso them white myself, let the gesso dry, and then apply a, a colored ground. My favorite, of course, is CAD Red Light, and I've been painting on it for years. I like CAD Red Light for a number of reasons. One, it's a middle value as it comes from the tube. Because it's a middle value, if I put a passage down and it's darker, I know I'm darker than a mid-tone. And if it appears lighter, I'm lighter than a mid-tone because that CAD red light is that middle value. Also, it's very warm. CAD red light approaches orange. It's definitely a warm red. And so if it's a warm dominant painting, I can allow more of the CAD red light to show through and enhance that warm dominance. And if it's a cool painting, then I can let little pieces of that CAD red light peek through, cover most of it, and those will be across the color wheel from the cool dominance and add that little sparkle to the painting. So that's why I like that. Do I always use it? No. Sometimes I'll take a white gessoed panel and I'll just tone it with a neutral warm brown, a lot like oil painters do with like burnt umber or burnt sienna. They'll tone and get rid of that white and then begin there. Sometimes I'll just set myself a problem and I'll tone my panel like bright yellow or violet and then try to make the plain air painting work with some of that or a lot of that or a little bit of that showing through. It's just all about the problem solving thing and, and having fun with it. So when I pack, say I have time maybe to do two paintings, I'll throw four panels in. And there'll be like maybe two CAD red light, maybe one's white and I'm going to tone it, maybe one's yellow or violet or something else, and they all go with me. And so I get to wherever I'm going to paint and I go, well, maybe this would be an appropriate time to do this one. And so I'll put that down and just make the painting work with whatever ground was down there. I can adjust all of the color and temperatures and values based on the ground and what I see uh, as I go. And that just gives me another way to get involved in the process. It gives me another problem to solve, gets me uh, frustrated. <laughs> Which is, you know, it's kind of a, like a good thing. Like, okay, can I solve this visual problem that I just set for myself? So it's not always the same. That's the danger 
and I, I need to say this for the listeners, the danger of that repeatable process is that you're always going to produce the work that you always have if you always work in the same fashion. I try to change up something about the way I work so that my work is always evolving. I suppose that's why I'm kind of a compartmentalized artist in what I do also, because I always feel that change leads to growth. At least it does for me. So for someone trying to learn to paint, especially if they have limited time, would you suggest focusing on finishing paintings or would you suggest that they break down skills that they want to focus on? Yeah, the skill building comes. It's like drawing. Drawing is a learned skill. I taught high school for many years and it's a repeatable learn skill. It's just like I would tell the athletes that I got in class, if you're playing basketball and you shoot three-point baskets for an hour every day, I can pretty much guarantee you, you will get better at shooting three-point baskets. There's no doubt about it. If you draw every day, especially drawing from life, you will get better at drawing. It's a learned skill. And the high school kids always surprise themselves and me too sometimes with, with their acquisition of that particular skill. Once you've acquired that skill, then it becomes about more the content of the work. You know, the storytelling, the emotional connection that you like to form with yourself and the viewer in there. And, and the skill level just helps you get there. You'll acquire the skills by just doing lots of paintings because you get more comfortable, your hand-eye coordination gets better, your vision gets better. So my advice always is, sure, take classes, go to museums, read, listen, watch videos. Sure, do all of that. But the best thing you can do to get better, paint. You can find more about Mark Mahaffey at his website, markmahaffeyfineart.com, on Facebook and on Instagram, and we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode five to get the show notes, links to Mahaffey's work, and to sign up for the newsletter. And if you enjoyed today's episode, share it with a friend. Happy painting.